in LA to sleep on, you know, my friend's couch with my $200 in change and a coconut and like no plan. I was fine with slumming it. So I was a 20 year old mural painter in Venice. And that was really my dream. I think, you know, you guys can't see me because you're listening to this podcast, but I'm very small. I'm about as small as an adult sized human can actually be. And (laughs) you can't, you also can't tell because I'm very loud. But uh, because of that, I like to make artwork that's larger than life. So I moved into my friend's shed in Venice Beach. And when I say shed, I'm not like, oh, exaggerating. It was a small apartment. It was a backyard tool shed that I put put like a shitty mattress on the floor of and like slept in for free in exchange for like helping their kid with their homework after school type of situation. And I just bummed around Venice Beach painting murals wherever anyone would let me. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Mel Judson. She is the founder and CEO of Mel Judson Design, a creative agency empowering high-achieving women to build powerful online businesses through branding, web design, and business mentorship. Mel is also the founder and owner of Seductive Business Embodiment, where she mentors female entrepreneurs to be fully embodied in their branding and copywriting and implement systems in their businesses that are designed to support their feminine energy rather than deplete it. In less than two years of launching her businesses, Mel built her revenue up to over $500,000 a year. She now teaches her clients how to do the same by building automated systems and processes so they can quickly and efficiently scale their businesses and design the life of their dreams. Prior to launching her businesses, Mel had a 10-year career in the Hollywood entertainment industry, where she worked behind the scenes to launch some of the most successful digital influencers in the world and developed key strategies for digital brands to build up tens of millions of engaged followers online. She has built her businesses with a completely location-independent infrastructure and now runs both of her companies while traveling the world as a full-time digital nomad. And she has lived in over 20 countries in just the last two years alone. Mel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. We should just set the scene and first of all, let people know that we are doing this interview on a boat in the middle of the Gulf of Aden, en route to Oman. That's right. Supposedly there's pirates here. <laughs> they, they have issued some pirate warnings to be on the lookout that we have not encountered any directly yet. But you and I are here and we have just opened a bottle of Rioja Crianza from Spain. And I feel like we should take the first sip of this because it smells really, really good. What do you think? Oh, yeah. It is as good as it smells. It's nice and smooth. Yeah, it's a lot better than the the free wine I've been drinking on this cruise ship. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, we are on we are on the Nomad Cruise. They have uh, an all inclusive, uh, sort of a quote unquote all you can drink and eat type of 
cruise ship arrangement here, but the free wine is not exactly the most impressive. Yeah, I will say it's a unique setting. This is my first cruise ship podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Your first cruise ship podcast. Well, as Maverick Show listeners know, I have interviewed quite a number of people in locations like a cruise ship cabin. Uh, And that's actually where some of the funnest uh, and most memorable and best interviews come from. So I am super, super excited to have you here. But we're going to be drinking through this bottle over the course of the interview. And I would love to start. It was actually really fun. You and I found out that we have a whole bunch of stuff in common, including the fact that we lived in Los Angeles during a lot of the same years and uh, and, our formative years, formative (laughs) years and have a bunch of East Coast uh, background as well. Some New York State background and overlapping and things like that. So I would love, though, for you to just start a little bit with your story in terms of growing up and what your path was like growing up, what your passions were growing up, and what sort of the initial career trajectory and aspirations were for you coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So I am from the Boston suburbs, hard knock life, (laughs) Uh, specifically Concord. So shout out to the start of the Revolutionary War for my American friends who are listening. That's where I grew up. And I grew up with a lot of structure. It was, you know, I had access to resources and education and things like that. So it was expected of me that I would do well in school. I would follow the rules. My entire first 18 years of my life was created for me to go to one of the best universities in the world. That was my parents started telling me that, buying me Harvard t-shirts as a child. Like, And I didn't go to Harvard, spoiler alert. <laughs> but the whole first 18 years of my life made sense because it was this clear-cut path. You do X, Y, Z, and then you'll get into a good college, and then you'll get a good job, and then you'll have a good life, and then that's your life, the end. <laughs> and I think a lot of people kind of have that like experience, and I, and I feel really lucky that my parents provided that structure and that guidance because I know a lot of people don't get that. So I followed the rules. I am a Capricorn. I like rules and order. And I followed it. I did everything right. And I I got into my dream university. I went to Cornell University and it got there and it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. It just, and for a lot of different reasons that we don't need to get into, but essentially it was my first experience of spending a lifetime working for something and then realizing it's not what I wanted. And then that's like so scary, right? Because I'm like, everything comes crashing down. Like, what do I want if this isn't it? I have to completely reinvent that. Um, So I dropped out of college. I dropped out of Cornell, which was like the biggest family disappointment. Imagine you groom someone for 18 years to do this thing and then they get there and they're like, nah. (laughs) And that was me. So I, I didn't I didn't even transfer. I was just like college. No. And I dropped out and I moved to Los Angeles because I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be in this vibrant city where there's real people, people working, people making art, people doing cool shit. L.A. was that place. And also it's fucking cold in upstate New York. So (laughs) L.A. was like a very attractive option for me. And that was kind of my first experience with doing what you're not supposed to do. You know, throwing away what they tell you to do, doing something that's more in alignment with yourself. Even though I didn't know what that was. I just knew this isn't right. I'm going to try something else. I love that. And I relate to it so much. I mean, as you know, I went to middle school and high school in Buffalo, New York. I went to college in Cleveland, that northeastern winter. Yeah. You also never want to be cold again. (laughs) I'm like palm trees, beaches. I've seen it in the movies. Send me out there. I want to relocate and try something different and recreate, you know, an environment and see what that would be like building something new there. So I 
as well. Los Angeles was a really formative transitionary movement for me. I know you, you and I have that in common and we connected on that, but I would love to hear for you when you made that move to LA, you're in a new environment. <laughs> It is amazing, too. I mean, like <laughs> L.A., like people romanticize it. Listen, I think it deserves it. Mm -hmm. I love that city. You know? Oh, yeah. And so when you got out there, what did you find and what did you do? And what was that initial experience like for you? Yep. So it was exciting, right? I mean, so Cornell is in upstate New York. It's in Ithaca, New York, which is a beautiful place, but there's nothing going on. And especially as an artist, as a creative person, I wanted to be around creativity. And so L.A. immediately was this vibrant city clashing of all these different kinds of cultures and foods and everything. So that part of it was amazing. But I also realized how lucky I had been my whole life. You know, my parents provided for me as a teenager, as a child and a teenager. And then in college, you know, you have a meal plan and a dorm and all these things that you take for granted. And suddenly I was in LA. I moved out there with $200 in change inside of a coconut. <laughs> so I arrive in LA to sleep on, you know, my friend's couch with my $200 in change and a coconut and like no plan. And life gets really hard really quickly, especially because, you know, I, I want to be clear that like I've never had true hardship because, you know, my parents would bail me out. But what I have had is ego. And my parents were not happy with me dropping out of college. So though I had a safety net, I didn't feel like I had a safety net because I was like, I cannot come crawling back to them. I have to figure this out. So, yeah, me and my $200, like, <laughs> basically, I got a job right away. I started working, like, random odd jobs, stuff like that. And I loved it. But very quickly, I realized, like, I need a college degree. I, I ran into so many different roadblocks. Like, I just couldn't make more than minimum wage, like, that sort of stuff. So after about six months, I actually did go back to school. I went to UCLA and ended up graduating from there. And I really struggled with that because it felt like going back to this thing that I don't want that wasn't right for me. But it was kind of like, I need this stupid $200,000 piece of paper in order to like live the life that I want. So I did that. I played the little game and I went and I got my degree. <laughs> and then after that, it was very easy to start getting jobs and everything like that. So that was what I did initially. And what was your sort of creative? I know you were you were looking for that creative energy and creative outlets in LA and, and all that kind of stuff. So how did you find that? I guess both in terms of, you know, where you went to pursue that passion and then also how that overlapped with your ultimately your uh job and career trajectory. That's right. Yep. So I was a, an artist. I mean, I still am an artist, but now I'm an artist that makes money. So I'm a designer. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> but back then I was fine with slumming it. So I was a 20 year old mural painter in Venice. And that was really my dream. I think, you know, you guys can't see me because you're listening to this podcast, but I'm very small. I'm about as small as an adult sized human can actually be. And <laughs> you can't, you also can't tell because I'm very loud, but, uh, because of that, I like to make artwork that's larger than life. I really love to create something that's not just bigger than myself, but bigger than anyone. And so I was always really drawn to murals. And I love this idea that murals brought this moment of delight while you're stuck in the infamous L.A. traffic and all this sort of thing. Something about the how it creates like a public space. It, it turns it almost into a gallery. So I was really drawn to murals. Um, there's not a lot of money in mural painting. <laughs> so I moved into my friend's shed in Venice Beach. And when I say shed, I'm not like, oh, exaggerating. It was a small apartment. It was a backyard tool shed that I put like a shitty mattress on the floor of and like slept in for free in exchange for like helping their kid with their homework after school type of situation. 
situation. And I just bummed around Venice Beach painting murals wherever anyone would let me. And that was essentially my introduction into like the bohemian, Venice, artist, creative scene. And let me tell you, I was so hungry and getting scary letters from my student loans because <laughs> I had no freaking money. And so eventually, you know, if, if you're from the U.S., maybe you've heard of Craigslist. I guess they have it around the world. But basically, it's this online forum where people can post for jobs, various creative gigs and stuff like that. So I was using Craigslist just to find any and every type of like graphic design or weird creative thing, even like babysitting, like personal assistant. I was doing everything just to scrape together like 200 bucks a month to buy like ramen noodles. <laughs> and I came across this ad looking for a collage artist to create a giant collage. And that's right up my alley as a mural painter and I went and I met this guy and it ended up being a collage of fan mail for this famous YouTuber. This was back in 2010, right when the first round of famous YouTubers, you know, YouTube was transitioning from cat videos, the cute pandas to like legitimate content. And um, this guy, yeah, he gave me all his fan mail. I created a giant mural for him. He was really happy with my work, and he hired me for more and more set design. And then eventually I met his other famous YouTube friends and realized that they were just, like, creating YouTube videos and that there was so much more they could be doing. They could diversify their whole strategy by leveraging their brand, so creating merchandise, um, putting out an album, um, getting on talk shows, like, sort of legitimizing their fame, taking it from YouTube to something that could have some longevity. And this was not something that any of them had really thought about since they were also just a bunch of bohemian artists, right? So I presented this plan to this guy and he essentially hired me to be in charge of like the branding and creative direction and everything of, of the brand. And that sort of transitioned into me working for a company called Maker Studios, which was like the first big network of YouTube channels. And then all of a sudden I was working for this big multi-million dollar company doing brand direction for the, the biggest brands on the internet. I was 23 years old, like still living in a shed. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing but I think that's why I was able to do it. The bar was at zero. Like there was no pressure. There was no expectations. Like no one had ever done this job before. So anything that I did was kind of okay. And I kind of parlayed or I guess leveraged that into a 10-year career in entertainment where I went from being a set designer to a brand director to a creative director, um, working all the way up, you know, to, to being a producer for some of the biggest channels out there, managing massive budgets and teams of talent and everything like that. And it all, when, I, when you look back on it, it's kind of like, how did all of this happen from a Craigslist ad? <laughs> That's so amazing. And I get so nostalgic, too, when you describe the ambiance of Venice Beach, because in my seven years living in Los Angeles, part of the time I was literally living on Venice Beach in an apartment that was right on the boardwalk. I'd be woken up every morning by the music buskers on the boardwalk. Every day I would jog up and down Venice Beach. And I think it is just the most spectacular anthropological phenomena on the planet of Earth. Like, I really believe it is the best people watching that I've seen anywhere in the planet. Now that I've traveled so far, I still tell people Venice Beach, Venice Beach. It's so special. Oh, yeah. It's basically like an everyday Burning Man there. <laughs> 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 it is amazing. And so I love that story about you as an artist on Venice Beach, doing street art on Venice Beach, and then using your intellect and your business acumen to then figure out how to monetize that and how to move up. Can you talk a little bit about maybe just some of the specific moves that you made when you were moving up that career trajectory 
and working for the influencers and then eventually for the studios and stuff like that. What were some of the specific leverage points or the specific business wins maybe that mm. you were helped those people achieve that really catapulted them forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first one was actually just a simple merchandise strategy that I put together for the first show that I was working for. The show um, had a bunch of different characters and everything like that. So there was, you know, kind of like a Disney movie or something. There was so much opportunity to generate revenue through merchandise. And there wasn't a system in place for people on YouTube to be able to do this. And specifically, in this case, this guy, one of his signature trademarks was he wore a pair of sunglasses, these yellow and green sunglasses. And they were very specific. And you can't just go to Walmart and like buy a bunch of them. And so I basically took his sunglasses and bought the one of those Pantone color decks, like a big swatch deck of all the colors with numbers and everything, and reached out to a supplier in China. I literally, I'm just Googling how to do this. Like I didn't know nothing about this. I reached out to a supplier in China. I send the Pantone colors. I get all these samples back and I'm like looking at the samples and everything like that. And next thing we know, you know, we ordered like 10,000 pairs of sunglasses and they sold out in like a week. And everyone was like, holy shit, like, like this is a thing you can do. It really launched this idea of YouTubers selling merch, which is now a completely normal thing to do. Like every YouTuber has a T-shirt. At the time, none of them did. People were afraid of being salesy on YouTube. But YouTube was actually one of the easiest places to create a successful merch strategy because you just read the comments. And it's very clear what people are latching onto and what people want. So that was kind of the first instance of this. And then other YouTubers started to see the possibilities and basically trust me to create, you know, T-shirts that this person ended up putting out like three albums and everything like that. And it ended up being, you know, very successful revenue strategy. So really, not only was it successful for that YouTuber, but it kind of showed what's possible for a YouTuber, how they could make money in other ways. Right. And then when you eventually moved into the studio mm -hmm. environment, can you give us a little behind the scenes on that? What was that experience like? Mm. And as you moved up the ranks in sort of the Hollywood entertainment <laughs> studio space? Whew, I don't know how much behind the scenes I really want to get. <laughs> yeah, entertainment is is interesting. I mean, I was actually just talking about this last night with some friends because someone brought up like, oh, yeah, Mel's met a bunch of celebrities. Ask Mel if she's met these celebrities. And it's true. I've met a bunch of celebrities and it's cool. Now it's a great party trick to be able to talk about this. But the reality is uh, it was 30 seconds of meeting, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio amongst months of 16 hour days. Like the reality is like production isn't glamorous the way people think it is. Like, yes, I got to go to award shows and like put on a fancy dress and schmooze with these celebrities. And there was all kinds of cool things that I got to do. But like probably that made up maybe 2% of what was mostly at a desk, <laughs> uh, like reviewing content. So like as a producer, essentially, you do everything. So I had to approve creative briefs from my team. And I had to review the rough cuts of their videos and sitting in on shoots and essentially problem solving and putting out fires and that sort of stuff. And that was, you know, I, I want to be clear that that's the real day to day of a, of a producer of someone working in and entertainment. But it is, it's truly rewarding because on YouTube, you put out videos and people write in the comments, you know, this video saved my life or 
I was going to commit suicide, but I found community here and now I'm not going to do that. And it's incredibly powerful. And this can be, you know, you're making silly content. You're making a five minute ice bucket challenge video, but it's creating this community for people who feel lost and alone. And and now you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. So that's what drove me for such a long time to work these non-glamorous 16 hour days, kind of in the mud, in the grit, doing everything like that. I was really lucky to have learned from one of the, the best YouTubers out there what goes on psychologically to create content that's going to excite tens of millions of people. And there's a very specific way to approach doing that on YouTube. And I got a behind the scenes view of that, that I was then able to apply to multiple brands. That's awesome. And then what was the difference when you went from that very, you know, freelance, I guess you would call it, right, type of situation when you were finding these people off Craigslist and finding their <laughs> their friends and then, you know, doing these creative things, but totally on your terms versus then when you moved into the studio environment mm. and you became an employee again and then you became moving up ostensibly the corporate Right. Ladder That's right. And stuff. Yeah. You never would have expected the girl living in a shed on Venice Beach to be showing up to work in a pantsuit and stilettos, like managing tens of thousands of dollars for shoot and everything like that. Yeah. I almost came to not recognize myself. It was really interesting. Like what drew me to YouTube in the first place was that it was the wild, wild west. Right. In traditional Hollywood, uh, there's a bunch of gatekeepers who say what's good enough, what's creative enough, what you can actually make. And on YouTube, you can make anything. And I really love that about it. But. But as soon as there's a bunch of money in something, all the people in suits come. (laughs) And that's basically what happened to YouTube. Things that used to be the wild, wild west turned into corporate. So suddenly, yes, I found myself working at this big corporate studio. But the thing that I found out about myself is I really like money and I really like the security that money brings and the opportunity that money brings because suddenly... I was able to eat healthy food. I was able to go to the gym. I was able to travel. Like money is a good thing because it allows you to do good in the world and increase your impact and everything like that. And I became very sort of attracted and addicted to that type of thing. And when you work in corporate, there's money that comes with that. But there's also a prescribed sort of accepted way of operating inside of corporate that I did really well in. But ultimately, it crushed my soul a little bit, which is, you know, we talked a little bit about this before the the podcast, but the idea of everyone in corporate, whether you're a man or a woman, the, the accepted corporate culture typically is to be very masculine. And I think that's because typically before like 50 years ago, it was only men working in any type of corporate industry. And so there's a specific culture that has been born out of that that still uh, persists today, even though, of course, there's way more opportunity for women and everything like that. Everyone is expected to behave a certain way inside of corporate environments, and that way is very masculine. And so for me, I was adopting the, this uh, leading by fear, for example. I was a very effective leader, but not the way that I wanted to be. I was an effective leader because my employees were like, oh, shit, if I don't do this, Mel has this whole list of consequences for me. And that strategy worked, but it's not who I am. Like, I'm super nice, kind, bubbly loving person. And now I lead my team effectively that way. But at the time, I thought the only way to lead is like this very strict through fear type of way. And that really slowly started to crush my soul was I essentially became another person that I didn't recognize. And you were in the space for a decade plus. And I know you worked for a couple different studios and really were able to effectively climb the corporate ladder. Can you talk a little bit about I guess your aspirations 
and how that climbing of the corporate ladder took place. And then ultimately, what was eventually the breaking point for you that made you decide to transition and go another direction? Yeah, so I'm not going to lie. I was able to succeed through a combination of sheer grit and my connections. And I want to be really clear about that because it's not the case that you just work hard and you succeed, certainly not in entertainment. I did work very hard, but I was very lucky. You know, I met this guy on on Craigslist and we actually ended up dating for about two and a half years. And through that connection, you know, I got my first job. But then as well, as a result of dating this person, I met so many high up people in the industry and had access to them when I otherwise wouldn't have and was able to make these connections and everything like that. So when that relationship ended and I decided I wanted to get a different job, I had access to all of these high up producers who all knew me and respected my work and everything like that. And I was able to reach out to them and essentially say like, hey, I'm available. Are you looking for a set designer or producer or anything? Like, here's my list of skills. And because of my reputation and my connection to this other person, I was basically hired right away. Essentially, I took a little detour and I started working for a company, another YouTube company that teaches Chinese language to English speakers. And it was a woman, a Chinese woman who had started off making language learning videos on YouTube that became very successful. And she decided to launch a business from that. And she decided to actually create a subscription model where you pay a membership fee and you get access to all this curriculum to learn Chinese. And this was actually my major in college. So it ended up being a great way for me to combine like the specific language skill set that I have alongside my YouTube skill set. And this was my first experience in sort of entrepreneurial business. In a way, I first started to learn about you know, sales funnels and email lists and websites and this type of thing because she was taking her career off YouTube and into a business. And I worked with her as her creative director for about two years. And that was really a key thing that I was missing professionally up until that point. So I was a very effective brand director inside of YouTube, but I was missing the business side in a way. I had little facets of it, like with the merchandise revenue strategy and things like that. But the idea of architecting a sort of self-sufficient like a business built upon a personal brand that delivers a service was something I knew nothing about. And I was basically able to leverage all of that to get a job working for Fine Brothers Entertainment doing a project. I, I worked with a pro- with them on a project that actually failed spectacularly. <laughs> but the reason I got hired into that project was there was essentially the way they put it to me when they hired me was there's no one else in the world with your combination of expertise when it comes to deep YouTube knowledge and like business expertise for how to create this this program that we want to create. And that was sort of my in in that way. And then once I got that job, I just worked my ass off, including networking. So you go to work all day and you work with people. But then after work, you strategically network with people by going out to the bars and drinking whiskey. And that's when the real business happens. And I essentially built up this group of people that liked me and owed me favors and this and that. And I was able to leverage that into three different promotions while I worked for this company. And, you know, these were promotions that I deserved, but I also had to advocate heavily for myself. And one, that's the cutthroat nature of entertainment. But I also believe that that's the nature of being a woman in entertainment. I had to work twice as hard and succeed twice as much to get the same salary and promotion as the guy next to me. For sure. And then once you were moving in that direction, you were getting those promotions and you were succeeding. 
that was, I'm sure, fulfilling in many ways because you were making more money and therefore you- No more ramen noodles. You know, <laughs> you, were, you were off the ramen noodles, uh, which, as you said, was a driver for you, right? And then you were obviously being recognized for your you know performance and all that kind of stuff with those promotions. And for a lot of people, that can become very seductive, right? If you're mm. making more money and then you're getting more accolades and then you're building your prestige and your, you know, all that kind of stuff as you get higher and higher up, a lot of people, that's a very seductive thing and then they stay there but you did not stay there you eventually ended up making a pretty dramatic transition and i would love to hear about that process for you what led up to you getting out of that space and what was the transition like for you Mm, yeah what's so interesting is that in all of this my life essentially repeated itself Everything that happened with the Cornell story that we opened with, where I worked my ass off, you know, starting from 12 years or even earlier than that, honestly. But 12 years was when I first started thinking about going to college. And I worked and worked and worked for this one goal. And then I got there and was like, oh, shit, this isn't what I want. And the same thing happened. Basically, once I realized I could be successful in entertainment, you're right. I became completely addicted to it, to the power and to the schmoozing and meeting the celebrities and feeling special and all of that kind of stuff that comes with it. And so in my head, I had this goal that I wanted to you know, be an executive producer by the time I was 30. And, you know, what that really means for those of you not in entertainment, I wanted to be in charge of my own content vertical. So essentially, I had an entire team of employees, both talent and, you know, producers and editors, etc. And I was the, the creative force driving the content that we created. And that was like kind of my ego. That was my big, like, you've made it kind of moment. So I set that as my goal. And I achieved that shortly after my 29th birthday. And my goal was to achieve it before 30. And that was really my highest moment in entertainment, because I felt like, you know, I've made it. I have finally proven myself this massive multi-million dollar company that's hugely successful. Trust me with an entire team to create an entire YouTube channel and all this content. And that felt, you know, very powerful and very amazing. And then you're right. A lot of people then would kind of stay there. But here's the thing. I kept saying to myself year after year, I'll be happy when. Right. So I'll be happy when I get this promotion. I'll be happy when I'm making $100,000 a year. I'll be happy when I'm making $200,000 a year. I'll be happy when I'm an executive producer. And you know what? I got to my I'll be happy when and I wasn't happy. And it was a huge mind fuck. Because, like, what do you do? And it was the same shit that happened to me at Cornell. I'll be happy when I get there and I'm not happy. Um, And I kind of freaked out a little bit. I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, is nothing ever going to be good enough? Like, this whole spiral that happened for me. And when everything clicked, I actually went on a trip to Barcelona and to, to Portugal, to Porto. And this trip was a bachelorette party for a good friend of mine, totally extra bougie bachelorette party in Portugal. Um, But the first part of the trip, I traveled to Barcelona by myself. And this was really the first vacation I had taken like my entire career. And I was only there for like four days. But I felt so happy and so free. The moment I got on the plane, I was just so happy and I felt like myself and like I was living my truth just these four days in Barcelona and everything brought me so much joy. I remember I arrived at my Airbnb in Barcelona and the host left a bowl of cherries for me on the balcony. 
the simplest thing. And I sat there like crying, eating a bowl of cherries because I was so happy. I didn't have to check my work email. I could just enjoy this amazing fruit and this like really kind thing that the stranger had done for me. And I could look down at the street below and I was like, this is what I want. Like, this is what actually matters to me. Yeah, it was it was really a revelation. And so I got back home after that trip. This was six months into my like big promotion that I was so excited about. And I was like, I have to change my whole life. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, it took a little while for me to realize what that was going to be. But after some reflection, I kind of realized that the moments in my life when I've been happiest have been when I've been traveling, when I've been free, when I've been having new experiences, those kinds of things. And so that was when I really realized, like, okay, you need to start a new life. That's amazing. I mean, the other thing that I very much personally relate to your story on is that major life pivot right at the age of 30. So when I was 30, I unexpectedly one day walked into work and got fired from my job. And at that point in my life, all my entire academic background, including my graduate work, And all of my professional work experience was in one particular area. It was in the nonprofit advocacy space, in fact, where I was working and doing meaningful work and all this kind of stuff. And then we had a change in management and everything just went in an entirely different direction. And so one day I walk in and I get blindsided and I'm 30 years old. And that's been my entire trajectory up to this point. And I get fired from my job. And I'm like, and for me, that was like my you know, all of a sudden, you know, literally that day, like my head was spinning, of course, because I was like, whoa, what do I do now? And I feel like what most people would do then is apply for another job. Right. And but for me, that like, I had been thinking about a lot of stuff like you're saying, right, in my background, I had had these things. I said, you know what, I really kind of aspire to these other things that I know that a nine to five job is never going to take me in that direction. And for me, it's actually really interesting, because the seduction for me, in staying in that space was not the money, obviously, in a nonprofit space, but it was the contributions I was able to make to the world and get paid for them, right? So I don't have to like do volunteer, you know, advocacy work. I actually get paid for making meaningful contributions to the world. So for me, that was actually the seductive space. I was like, this is amazing. Because when I was in grad school and stuff, I was doing all this activist work, but I wasn't getting paid for it. I mean, that was like after just volunteer stuff. And I'm like, you mean you're going to pay me to do activist work around issues that I care about that affect positive change in the world? And I can actually just do that and like make a living off of it? That's insane. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I want to make a whole bunch of money, but it was like, wow, I get paid for doing this. So that for me was very, you know, profound and seductive. And then when I turned 30 and I got fired from my job, I decided that, you know, similar to you, that I needed something that was going to be just create more autonomy, right? Where I could continue to contribute positively to the world, but on my own terms, not uh, according to what a supervisor would direct and tell me to do. And I could then create, you know, the location independence and, you know, all of these other types of things. And so that sort of was me embarking on my entrepreneurial journey, right, which is still grounded in, you know, donating 10% of our company revenue to causes that we care about and like, you know, still contributing positively in all sorts of things. But to chart a course that would give me a lot more autonomy, both in terms of the freedom of mobility, control of my time, you know, ability to do a whole bunch of other stuff and have more control over my life. So it was that 30 year old, you know, pivot in life that I I totally relate with you to your story on that. But I would love to hear from you once you had that 
revelation and you ate the cherries in Barcelona and you said, this is not Drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, you, you ate the cherries in Barcelona and you said, this is not going to be the next 30 years of my life, right? I need to do something different. How then did you go about the transition? Because I feel like I talked to a lot of people that are in the exact same position that you just described, right? They've worked very hard to, and they've, they're very smart people. They've worked their way up the corporate ladder. They're making a good amount of money. They have all these accolades for all the positive work that they've done. And they're really, really not fully satisfied, right? And once you realize that, what was your move to transition to something else? How did you approach it and how did you execute your transition? That's right. It's a great question. And I did a thing that not not enough digital nomads do that I recommend everyone do. And I always like to start this by saying like, okay, if your toilet breaks in your house, what do you do? You try to fix it yourself. Maybe if you're super broke, but most people call a plumber, right? Or let's say you're getting a divorce. What do you do? You call a lawyer, right? Essentially, when these things happen in your life and you need a service by a professional, you hire a professional who knows what they're doing because that's the fastest way to get your thing fixed or done. So for me, making this life change was the exact same thing as having a broken toilet or needing to call a lawyer. I was like, okay, I've gotten used to this certain lifestyle, making money, having stability, this and that. I've met a lot of travelers and they're broke. And that was cool when I was 18 and whatever, shed in Venice Beach, like I can hang. Also, I like nice things, (laughs) right? So I wanted to figure out a way that I could live the life I wanted as a digital nomad, traveling full-time, but not be broke, but, but have a business and be successful and not just for myself, but so that like you were just saying, so I can make an impact because, you know, one of the biggest negatives for me inside of entertainment was feeling like it was so hard as a woman, feeling like I wasn't taken seriously, especially because again, you all listening can't see me, but not only am I very small, but I have like curly red hair and freckles and I look adorable. I don't look like someone that's going to be your boss. I look like the intern. And I struggled with that, like, a lot. (laughs) I still look like I'm 16 years old, despite the fact that I'm actually almost 32. So for me, it was really important to also do something that was going to be able to have a big impact and help a lot of other women. And so I wanted to make this transition as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So I hired a professional. I was very lucky in that I had access to savings and access to resources. And I went out there and found one of the best business coaches in the world who had achieved what I wanted to achieve. And I gave her my entire life savings and hired her for... I initially hired her for three months, but I ended up working with her for just over a year. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to start a business that would be location independent where I could make a good amount of money. And I was like, can you help me? What can I do? And she did. She laid out an entire plan with me. We looked at my skill set. I did not have the idea to start a branding and web design business. In fact, I was very resistant to that idea. Um, And she was like, this is the fastest way for you to leverage your skill set and make money. And that was really an eye opener for me because when I had this epiphany about changing my life, I thought that meant I have to do something I'm passionate about. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people think is like the thing that will make me happy is making money doing something I'm passionate about. And I think that's true for some people. But what I think is really interesting is what actually will make you happy is doing something that will make you a lot of money 
so that then you can do the thing you're passionate about. And you, that thing doesn't have to rely on you generating revenue from it, especially because a lot of the stuff we're passionate about is just never going to be a moneymaker. So why mix the two? And that was a big revelation for me. She was like, this is the fastest way for you to make a bunch of money. So who cares if you don't like it? Do this thing. And I was the asshole who paid this woman tens of thousands of dollars and was trying not to listen to her expert advice. (laughs) So that was a little slap in the face that was like, do you want to do this or not? So I listened to her and I launched my branding and web design business after about six months of us working together to prepare it. And now this was one of the hardest times in my life because I had my extremely demanding job. I was working 16 hour days. I would come home at nine or 10 o'clock at night, exhausted and work on my business till four o'clock in the morning because it was the only time I had. And then I would get up at 6 a.m., put on my stilettos and my pantsuit and go to work, (laughs) managing this team, making big creative decisions. And it was not sustainable and it was very hard. But for me, it was my only way. So for six months, I did this. I launched my branding and web design business. And in the first week that I launched it, I immediately got a bunch of clients. And within the first month of launching, I had replaced my corporate income salary. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So then from there, you're literally sleeping (laughs) two hours a night, building this business on the side while you're working your job. You demonstrate that it works in in one month. Mm -hmm. And then from there, once you established that, what then was your next move? Yeah, so in my head, I had thought, It's going to be a slow launch. I'm going to launch this business. I'll get a couple of clients. I didn't want to quit my job until I I could replace my exact income. That was important to me. So I thought that would take six months. So actually, it happened right away. And I was like, oh, fuck, I have to like capitalize on this momentum that I have and quit my job and like put all my attention into my business. (laughs) And so I did that within one month. And I wasn't planning to do this at all. I quit my job went full time in my business, took on all these clients. And then I decided, well, I've achieved what I wanted. So it's time for the next thing. So also in that same month, I found a sublet for my apartment, sold everything I own in my life, took two suitcases and moved to Bali and became a digital nomad. (laughs) (laughs) As one does. (laughs) Right. Why fuck around? (laughs) I love that. I want to emphasize, though, just what you said for people that are well into their professional career in the corporate world that sort of have these aspirations of maybe doing something different, that you were able to replace your corporate salary within a month of launching your company. But even if for many people, it takes longer than that. And even if it took the full duration, you were anticipating six months, right? So even if it takes someone six months The reality is that if people have a high level skill set, there are ways to strategically monetize that Mm -hmm. into a business and then to build that up over, let's just say it takes a full six months. But within six months, realistically, anybody listening to this who's in the corporate world, the dreams of doing what you're doing realistically in six months with the right coaching and mentorship it is very, 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 very possible for most people to make that leap if they choose. Absolutely. 
Yes. And it's one of the biggest resistances that I see. People think there's something special about me or I had a unique circumstance. And sure, we all have unique circumstances. Like, Of course, there's a lot of privilege that comes into my success story. But the reality is, if you've had a job for a few years, any kind of job, you pretty much have a skill set that can be at least leveraged into you know, a virtual assistant position, which pays very well if you do it correctly. But I think the very the most important thing about what you just said is paired with the right business mentorship. And that's the biggest missing piece. For some reason, people have this huge resistance around investing in themselves and their future and their success. And it doesn't make sense to me because, you know, you go to a doctor, you go to a dentist to get your tooth pulled. Like we don't have problems investing in professional services and every other aspect of our life. But when it comes to investing in ourselves and our business, suddenly we don't do it. And then we wonder why we don't succeed. So it's really a matter of investing in someone who knows exactly how to get you to where you want to be and then leveraging your existing skill set. And it's 100 percent possible for you. Well, and I love also what you said is that you went out and you looked and you researched and you found a person that had already done what you wanted to do. And you paid that person to teach you how to do what they did. All of my money. <laughs> All of it. My family was like, she's finally gone crazy. She's finally lost her shit. <laughs> but sure enough, within less than six months, it worked. You were able to launch and you were able to do what that person did. That's correct. And at this point, I would say I've invested about $200,000 in myself and my business in various different ways. And I always feel like it is the best investment that you can possibly make because you have to be yourself for the rest of your life. So any money that you put into that, you are going to reap the benefits of. Right. And it's like, you know, you have developed such everybody has the whatever they do, right, has developed such a high skill level in whatever area it is that they've spent their time working in. They are a master expert professional in something. And if you don't have the business skills to learn how to monetize that and monetize it to a degree that's greater than what your employer is paying you, then you hire someone that knows those business skills and they can teach you how to do that. And then you can make more money than what your employer is paying you. Exactly correct. It is the shortest way from point A to point B. Because the reality is most people who put in the work can maybe figure this out with about three years of trial and error. Most of the information is available online for free about how to do this. It's the execution and the implementation because there's so many different paths that if you try to do a little bit of each one, it doesn't work. You have to pick one and commit to it. And that's the power, at least in my experience, of hiring a business coach was I hired this person. I committed to her method. She told me, you know, there's many paths. This is my path and you're going to follow this one. And I did. And I didn't get distracted by any shiny objects. The number one thing I hear from my own clients now that I mentor is maybe I should start a blog or like, what about a podcast? Or like, I'm having, I have this new service I want to offer. They just have so many things they're getting distracted by. And all of those things are avenue for success. But the reality is you have to pick one and do the shit out of it. And that's what a business coach will help you do. Awesome. So let's talk about how you did that and built your company. What was your approach in terms of taking your professional skills and turning that into a business? What did that path look like for you? Mm, that's right. So what my coach picked up on for me, which I'm very grateful for, was she right away saw you're a branding expert. 
right? You've worked with all of these brands. You know exactly how to essentially create like a marketing and PR campaign to create a brand that is seen in a certain light that instantly has a bunch of like rabid fans. And so every business needs a brand, right? (laughs) Whether you're an online business or a brick and mortar business, like there's infinite clients for creating a brand. And every business has a brand, whether or not they've purposely cultivated it, right? So in her mind, she said, you know, this is your expertise. You can literally take this expertise and just start doing it essentially as a business. That was what I did. And then I added in the web design element because the way that businesses work now, especially online businesses, we don't just need a brand. We all need a website. If you're a business, you need a website, which means there's an endless number of clients available for me if I can provide that service. So it was a combination of what are my skills and what does the market want and need and putting those two things together. And And one of the biggest mistakes I see is a lot of people are missing one of those. They either just try to do what the market needs, but they don't have the skills or desire to do it, or they just try to do what they want, but the market doesn't actually want that thing. So you find this beautiful combination of like, what is your skill set combined with what does the market actually want? So that's how I got into both branding and web design. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. There are an enormous amount of digital agencies out there that in theory are selling some sort of web design service or online branding service or other general digital business offering. How did you approach what appears to be a very crowded space and basically make an impact to disrupt it, to make yourself prominent, to create a niche, which I know you've done, and to move into a crowded space and be successful? Mm, I love this question. So here's what's so interesting about niching and the fear around niching. Let's say you have to get a root canal. Do you want to get a root canal from a general dentist who does all the dentist things? Do you want to get a root canal from the person who specializes in root canals, who's performed 10,000 root canals with amazing glowing reviews? Which one do you want? You want the specialist. You want the specialist. Yeah, it's a root canal. Yeah. So the same thing exists in literally every industry. It's a little bit harder to conceptualize because branding and web design is not tangible. It's not something you can touch the way you can, for example, a root canal. But it's the same basic concept, niching down. And everyone's fear with niching down is I'm going to lose clients. I'm going to alienate people, blah, blah, blah. Yes, you are. But you're going to magnetize the people who need the root canal or whatever the thing it is that you do. So for me, my specific niche was or is women not just women, but it's service-based entrepreneurs. So women who want to build a business online. And inside of that, I really specialize in creating brands and websites for online coaches and for copywriters and those types of things. And even inside of that, that's like a fairly broad niche. So even even more specifically, I specialize in helping um, you know spiritually minded women, digital nomads. I work with a lot of women digital nomads who you know identify with me because of the lifestyle that we share. And so by niching down, I am now the go-to person for women online business owners in that sort of specific worldview to work with me. And most of my clients come to me and they say, I've been wanting to work with you forever. I'm so excited that we're on the phone. Like the second that I could afford the investment, I called you because I know that you're the best. 
but I'm not the best if you want a website, you know, for your construction business. <laughs> I'm not the best if you want a website for hosting membership content. I do one specific thing and I'm the best at it. And so those people who want that thing come to me for it. And that is the power of niching. And that's how I've been able to stand out in what is certainly a very crowded industry. What process would you recommend? I have friends that are, you know, pretty high up in the corporate space. And they tell me that they would love to live the lifestyle that you and I are both living. And I say to them, you know, you're an insanely high level expert in this particular thing that you've been doing for your, you know, entire corporate career, 20 years in this thing. You have an insane amount of expertise. You know, what about jumping out of the corporate world and doing your own thing? And they say, yeah, but there's so many people that already do that. How would I be successful jumping into a crowded space like that? What is the process that someone like that should go through to try to identify their niche or their unique value proposition that they can add to a crowded market? Yep. So first, I would offer a mindset reframe, because what you're describing is very much the ego speaking, like, how can I stand out? That's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, how can I be of service? Right. So if you're an expert in something, the reality is there's people out there that are in pain, they're suffering and they need your expertise and they need your help. And for you to not be providing that is really doing a disservice to the world. And that's really what I, I would offer. There's like seven billion people in the world. So like one branding and web designer can't serve all of those people. We need your voice and we need your expertise because you're only going to work with 10, 20, 30, 100 people a year, perhaps, but you're going to change those people's lives. And by not doing that, you're kind of being selfish, right? It's not about you. It's about taking what you were put on this earth to do and providing that to as many people as possible so that you can change lives and so that you can raise the vibration of everyone on the planet. Awesome. I love that framework. So let's talk a little bit about your business offering and also your core niche. We talked a little bit about in the beginning, and then you just mentioned again, your niche in working with female entrepreneurs and this concept. I'd love for you to go into a little bit of this concept of maintaining feminine energy in your business. I have a lot of female entrepreneurs, both that are friends and listeners of this podcast. So I would love for you to go into that and share what you mean by that and, you know, what female entrepreneurs should be considering in that area. Yep, 100%. So um, this is a bit of a generalization, but I, I believe that all humans embody both fast, uh, feminine and masculine energy, right? The, the yin and the yang. There's a lot of different ways to put this. And it's not about your gender or anything like that. It's about this idea of energy. So traits that are generally considered to be masculine are being strong, being a leader, potentially being fierce or being curt, those types of things. And again, this isn't man or woman. This is just masculine versus feminine energy. Feminine energy tends to be, you know, nurturing, communicative, those kinds of things. All humans embody both. And most humans have more of one than the other, right? Most of us feel more connected either to our masculine or to our feminine energy. And of course, in the grand scheme, typically, people who identify as men tend to identify more with masculine energy. People who identify as women 
tend to identify more with feminine energy. Of course, this is definitely not always the case. There's every infinite possible scenarios for your gender identity and your energy identity and all these types of things. But this is speaking on a general basis, and it's also speaking on my personal experience. I am a woman, and also I identify with my, my feminine energy more than my masculine energy, though I have both, just like we all do. So in the corporate world, as we spoke about, masculine energy is the thing. Even if you're a man who identifies more with your feminine energy, you have to suppress that in favor of adopting this masculine energy to succeed in the corporate world. And so it causes a lot of people, both men and women, to be out of alignment. It caused me to be out of alignment inside the corporate world. And essentially what it teaches people who identify more with their feminine energy is that they have to suppress that if they want to succeed in business, if they want to succeed in the corporate world. That's what I did. And that's why I became so miserable is because I became a version of myself that isn't true and that's like I think that's the most suffering that you can have in this world in a way is living a version of yourself that's not in full truth right and so I started to experience a lot of women in addition to myself that were suffering from this affliction it's almost like a literal version of wearing the pants right (laughs) and I don't believe it's true And in fact, I have empirically demonstrated that it's not true because of my brand, because of the way that I lead my team. It's very feminine. It's very soft. It's very open. It's very friendly. It's very nurturing. And I'm very successful and I make a lot of money. And so because of that, I want to empower women or anyone who identifies more with their feminine energy and let them know that you can embrace this. You can let this be your dominant energy and your force and use that to, to have wild success in business. You don't have to adopt this masculine energy. That's one way, but it's not the only way. And I want to carve that path for people to let them know that they can be in their full truth and their full alignment and also succeed wildly in their business endeavors. So that's a very important personal mission for me. And it's why I started my second company, Seductive Business Embodiment. And it's what I teach women to do now. And are there specific tactics or tips that you can share for that in terms of kind of like assessing, like, where are you on that masculine feminine energy scale right now, that continuum, and then where you ideally want to be? And then any tips or tactics in, you know, particularly for female entrepreneurs that are listening, you know, that you can share in terms of moving in that direction? Yep, 100 percent. So for a lot of people who identify as women in in at least Western societies, um, we are taught to suppress our feelings. So most of the beginning of this journey is an exercise in discovering your own feminine energy and letting this be unapologetic. And so I have an exercise that I love that I recommend to all of my clients, and I call it your dirty secrets exercise. And essentially, this is something that I did that, that really like helped me break free of these like limiting ideas about how I can be in the online space. And basically, it's all you do is write down like 20 dirty secrets. I'm doing quotes. You guys can't see dirty secrets about yourself that you don't want people to know. And these can be about sex. You know, the idea of the word dirty makes people think I'm talking about sex. And that that is part of it and can be that way because there's a lot of shame around sex and sexuality and all that sort of stuff. So some of your dirty secrets can be that. But not always. There might just be other dirty secrets about the way you think or the way you feel or something you've done. You don't want anyone to know about it. So write down these 20 dirty secrets that you have that you wouldn't want a partner to know. You wouldn't want to put on Instagram. And then the exercise is to pick one of those and write a blog post, write an Instagram post, write a Facebook post, write something about this thing, sharing 
why it happened, why you feel this way, why this is important to you. And it's an exercise in vulnerability that's incredibly empowering for people because what happens is you're not alone in the human experience. There's almost nothing that humans experience that another human doesn't also experience. So when we take away all of this bullshit about how we're supposed to be, and we offer up a true, raw and real, authentic experience, and we offer that up to the people, people are like, yes, me too. I identify, that resonates. Thank you for putting yourself out there and giving me permission to do the same. So that's what I always recommend as the first exercise is to be vulnerable and put that out there. And what you see from that is that that empowers not only you, but everyone around you. And it's like the highest act of service that you can really engage in. Awesome. Okay, so I also want to jump back to your business journey. And you mentioned that you left corporate once you established that you could replicate your income. And then you did what most digital nomads do, and they move to Bali, or they move to <laughs> Chiang Mai, or they do something like so that. So basic. <laughs> um, and I would love to hear your experience in Bali, both your personal experience, because that was, of course, your first, you know, month as a digital nomad. And then also your business experience. When you were at that point of your business journey, you had clearly demonstrated minimum viable product. There were people willing to pay for your services. They were willing to pay a lot for them. There were a number of customers you were comfortable with the business you were getting. But what then was your business building, business scaling process? And I would love to hear also how that sort of dovetailed with your <laughs> digital nomad journey as you landed in Bali. Oh, Bali. Bali is a great teacher, as you'll hear from all the bohemian hippies that go to Bali. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to not be a statistic, but I am. I did the basic thing. I moved to Bali. The reason I moved to Bali was because it feels like the epicenter of the digital nomad community. And I knew very little about this idea of being a digital nomad. And so I thought, let me do the path of least resistance. Let me do the easiest thing. Go to a place that's already set up for people like me and start there. So that's why Bali. And I did basically no other research besides that. <laughs> So I arrive in Bali. And of course, this is in Indonesia. Of course, it's Southeast Asia. And, you know, I understand that it's a different culture. It's different society. There's different, you know, conveniences available than what might be available, you know, in Los Angeles or the U.S. or anything like that. And I had lived in China. I had lived in places before. In my head, I was like, I'm cool. I can hang. Like, I got this. Like, I did not got this. Is <laughs> really to sum it up. Um, so we talked a little bit about my 30th birthday and, you know, as you mentioned, like 30 is a milestone for everyone. And also 30 is especially a milestone for women because there's so much emphasis on us being young and sexy and this idea when you turn 30, you may as well be 100 because you're not 20 anymore. And I struggled, you know, a lot with that. So I am an attractive person and I'm aware of this and I know that it has contributed to my success, both in corporate and in my current business. I leverage it strategically, just like you would leverage any other asset. This is an asset that I can take no credit for, <laughs> that I just happen to have and then recognize and then leverage. And so turning 30, I started to question that asset. You know, I have gray hairs. I have wrinkles. 
right? All of these things. My boobs are a little saggier than they were 10 years ago, right? So these things are happening. And this is an asset that I have leveraged as part of my success and also as part of my ego and my self-worth. And so turning 30 as a woman, I started to spiral in the way that we all do. Like you're less you're less worthy, right? You're not married yet. Like you don't have kids yet, all these things. And you're turning 30. And I wanted to rewrite that story. So I thought, all right, I'm changing my whole life anyway, right? I'm starting a business. I'm moving to Bali. I'm this and that. Why not take back what turning 30 means as a woman? And why not do like this? This is your sexiest time, right? Because I finally know who I am and I'm finally living my truth. And that's really like the sexiest thing. It doesn't matter about wrinkles and saggy boobs and whatever else. So I thought I'm going to do this, this sexy boudoir photo shoot and I'm going to do it on my 30th birthday in Bali to really like explode into my new decade of being 30. And it was really important to me on a personal level. This, by the way, wasn't even like an Instagram photo shoot or anything. This was like photos I was just going to keep for myself, right? So I plan this whole thing. I hire a photographer. I get all these, I order on Amazon, like the sexy lingerie and the the necklaces and the jewelry. And I, I make a Pinterest board to plan out the creative for this photo shoot. I've never done anything like this before. I'm usually very conservative. I'm the person in cardigans and like collared shirts, <laughs> but I'm going to do this boudoir photo shoot. So I get to Bali and on day two in Bali, I do what everyone does and I rent a scooter. If you haven't been to Bali, basically the way to get around is through a motor scooter. That's just the best form of transportation. Things are very spread out. You need a motor scooter. So I go to rent a motor scooter day two in Bali. I've ridden a scooter before 10 years previously in China. I think like I'm a pro. Also, let's be honest, I was feeling a little bit cocky because here I am, like launched my business, quit my job, moved to Bali on top of the world. I'm invincible, blah, blah, blah. I was still in my 20s, to be fair. <laughs> so I get on the scooter. I ride, you know, maybe 30 feet. What is that? 10 meters for everyone else listening. And um, I crash into a fence because I accelerated instead of braking. Super basic move. And I smashed my knee into something. It exploded, like blood everywhere, like flesh. I passed out in the road. A very kind local, like, like drapes me on the back of his motorbike and takes me to a hospital. Next thing I know, I'm getting my legs stitched together without anesthesia. And I'm screaming hysterically. I have like my mascara streaming down my face, like so dramatic. Just And I think everyone in there was like, this fucking white girl is such a wimp because I am just screaming. I got five stitches. So like... It's, in the grand scheme of things, not a major injury, but for me, <laughs> it was like the worst thing ever. And I was alone. I knew nobody. So after that, you know, I couldn't walk for a month. But in addition to that, my, my boudoir photo shoot was the next day. This whole creative was architected around a bathtub. I specifically booked this fancy ass villa with this big bathtub in the middle of everything that I was going to fill with rose petals and like sit in sexily and all so then I have a trash bag wrapped around my knee and my legs sticking out of the bathtub. The whole rest of me is all made up, all sexy. My photographer, so kind, so graciously, like taking photos at the right angle so you can't see my legs sticking out of the rose petal bathtub. Like it was such a real moment, right? Like that's what turning 30 really is. Like 
on the surface, it's like, I'm sexy and I have rose petals and lingerie. And also my leg is wrapped in a trash bag. And if I get it wet, it's going to get infected and I'm going to have to fly to Singapore. (laughs) Right. And I love that. Like, I was so disappointed at the time. But the reality is that's what life is. Like, we always are on the verge of infection. (laughs) We always have one part of our body that we can't get wet. This is a metaphor. And it was so powerful for me. And then a whole bunch of other shit happened to me in Bali. It's just one thing after the next. I call it the, the seven deadly sins. You know, I got bed bugs and had to fumigate everything I owned. I had my laptop locked in a safe. And when you're a digital nomad, that's like the worst thing that can happen to you ever. I literally smashed a safe with a hammer for like an hour to get my laptop out of this thing. I got stuck in a cafe till 6 a.m. because of the monsoon that happens in Bali during January, February, and March. So just everything went wrong for me in Bali. And I started to feel like this isn't for me. Like, I not only is Bali not for me, Bali, again, I had this moment. This thing that I thought was going to be amazing isn't what I thought it would be. This is the third time it happened. It happened with Cornell. happened with getting my dream job. And now it's happening again with Bali. And I started to think, like, is something wrong with me? Like, why am I never satisfied with anything? That was tough because at the time, as you mentioned, my business was as successful as ever. I can't walk, but I'm making 30 grand a month. I have 10 clients. I have a wait list until March, all of these things. So while all of this is happening, I'm working 16 hours a day. But instead of working as a producer, I'm working for myself, which is much more stressful. Let me be honest, because the paycheck's not guaranteed. So I started to realize like, okay, You figured out how to have a business. You figured out how to have clients. But now you need to figure out how to treat your business like a business. Like, you're not a freelancer. You're not fucking around. Like, you're a CEO. And, like, you need to get it together. This is not... I was manually doing everything. So manually emailing back and forth to set up appointments. And the turning point for me in Bali was when daylight savings time happened in the U.S. Because at that time, most of my clients were in the U.S., So I had manually scheduled all these appointments two weeks out with all these clients and daylight savings time happened for them and there's no daylight savings time in Bali. So I missed a bunch of client appointments because I was an hour late for them because of daylight savings time. And it was so unprofessional and I felt horrible and it was the first moment where I wasn't providing the high ticket VIP level of service that I had become known for. I felt like my reputation was now in jeopardy because I had missed these meetings and everything like that. And that was when I realized... Like, you are always going to be limited by your own energy if you don't figure out a way to automate and systematize. It was a big epiphany for me. I think that's such an important differentiation between a freelancer and a business owner slash CEO. Massively different. And I feel like a lot of people fall into the self-employment trap. Mm. They leave a job... And they create another job <laughs> for themselves. And now they don't have a boss, but they still have a job, right? And they're in the self-employment trap and they're freelancers and they're selling and trading their time for money. And they can only, they're on the hamster wheel again. They left the corporate hamster wheel and now they're on the self-employment hamster wheel and they don't know how to get out of that, mm. right? They're a freelancer. Maybe they've created that separation from the corporate world. Maybe they've even created location independence. Maybe they've even moved to Bali. 
<laughs> the dream. But that's very different from being a business owner, from building and scaling a real business and being a CEO. So can you talk a little bit about that and what your building and scaling process was like for your business from there? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I went through what I think every entrepreneur goes through when they start to see a little bit of success, which is that I wanted to hold on to every dollar. I had the scarcity mindset. I was used to getting a paycheck every two weeks, no matter what. Now I'm making a bunch of money, but in my head, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'll never get more clients ever again, right? Maybe this money has to last me for the next year. So every dollar I made, even though I was doing well, I held on to so tightly because I was afraid. And so when I started going through this and I started, I was working 16 hours a day. I was at these co-working spaces in Bali till the middle of the night. I made no friends in Bali. I never went to the beach to see the sunset, which is like the thing to do in Bali. I was just working because I had to serve my clients. And my business coach was like, you need to hire a team and you need to create systems inside of your business. Like you have a proven model. You can get clients. And you're doing a bunch of stuff over and over and over and over again that can be systematized. Like, of course, a website and a brand is always going to be custom. But everything else around that, all the admin and all this stuff, you can either hire out or create an automated system to do. And I had a lot of resistance around this because, one, the money. Two, the ego. I thought, I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the only one that can properly answer this customer email. I'm the only one that can design this logo the right way. So I fought with my business coach for about a month, continued working 16-hour days, suffering, crying, struggling. Like my Honestly, my clients were unhappy because you can't really serve 12 clients when you're one person. It sucked. It was so hard. And so finally, just by, you know, my options were essentially fail or do this. So I did two things at the same time and I hired and created systems. So, and again, I had the support of my business coach to tell me exactly how to do this. Otherwise I would have fucked it up a bunch of times. But she said, here's how you hire. Write a post on Facebook like this. She sent me a template. Do the interviews like this. Make a spreadsheet, X, Y, Z. I hired a virtual assistant and a designer in the same month, month three inside of my business. I hired them both for 10 hours a week, and within three months, they were both full-time inside of my business. That in and of itself made a huge impact. But in addition to that, I also didn't want to be paying these people to do stuff that a computer can do. So alongside that, I started exploring softwares to automate different things in my business. So this is things like, you know, the time zone issue. Right away, I realized I need to be doing call bookings with a calendar, that will automate time zones and all of that nonsense. I shouldn't be emailing back and forth like, oh, you're in Australia, I'm here. Like, does this time work? Does this time work? Huge waste of my time and a huge margin for error because we're humans. So basically what I did, I made a list of all the things inside of my business that I do for every single client. So booking a sales call, you know, having them fill out an application, sending them a contract, sending them an invoice, all of these kinds of things, sending them the welcome packet for when they sign on to work together. I was doing all this manually and I wrote out all that stuff and then I looked at what can be automated. What can I just set up once and have it be like a a triggered workflow? And I first used a program called Asana to automate some of this. 
and I tried out a bunch of different softwares. And this was actually the hardest part. The hardest part was not like doing the automation, but it was like there's so many different softwares and apps out there to do this. And it's very intimidating. This is the biggest resistance I see for people like figuring this out. Like, which one do I choose? Because it's a lot of work to put all your stuff into one of these systems. So if you choose the wrong one to then have to move it all over sucks. And you don't make money for any of that, right? That's like internal admin stuff that no one's paying you to do. So I also was like, I don't want to pick the wrong one. Luckily for me, I was also in this mastermind of other peers and um, that we met. It was a group of women who were business owners and we met once a week and I shared this problem. And this woman said, oh, you have to try Dubsado. And Dubsado is a project management software that helps you send contracts and invoices. You can also set up these automated workflows. And she was like, just try it out. It's what I use. I recommend it. And I did. And it happened to be the best thing ever. And it's, you know, what I still use today inside of my business and help all of my clients set up. But basically now, all of the stuff that a robot can do inside of my business, a internet robot does. And then all of the stuff that a human can do, my team does. And I do the CEO things, which is what you should do when you're a real business owner. Can you talk a little bit about what, the role of a CEO should be. <laughs> so, so when people are sort of mapping out their business plan and their hiring process and their team building structure, I would love for you to talk about what the role of the CEO actually should be. But then also, I would like for you to go deep because I do have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show and they're at different stages of their mm. business building. But I feel like even advanced entrepreneurs can really learn some stuff from you in terms of the way that you've automated the different pieces of your business. So I would love at this point to just kind of go a little bit tactical and for you to talk about the specific different pieces of your service-based business and how you've automated mm. them. Mm -hmm. Yep. So on a high level, the biggest difference between being a CEO and being a freelancer is the difference between working in your business versus working on your business. Working in your business is essentially all of the client delivery. So in my case, as a branding and web designer, it's all of the tasks of creating the brand, building the website, all that sort of stuff. That's working in the business, delivering the service. And that's a huge part of any business. However, if you have a business, you very quickly will learn it's actually way less of a percentage of your business than you thought it was. One big mistake I see people make when they first get started is thinking they need to work on their craft. So let's say you're a copywriter. I'm gonna take a copywriting course and get better at copywriting and that's gonna help my business. No, like you are a good enough copywriter and it's great to improve your skills, but the reality is most service-based entrepreneurs don't need to improve their skills, they need to improve their business. And it's really important distinction. So for me, a CEO, works on the business and not in the business. Your team works in the business. Your team does the client delivery, the admin, all that sort of stuff, and your systems. You work on the business. And what that actually means is architecting the overall strategy for your business. So what's your revenue goal, right? When are your launches going to be? What's the marketing strategy? Those types of high-level things, that's what a CEO does. You create the vision and then you impart that vision onto your team and you lead that vision. And that's really what a CEO is doing because the reality is there are people out there that are better than you at everything. 
and you want those people to work for you in your business. So I'm a pretty good designer. I am not the best designer. I want the best designer to work in my business. And that's not me. I want to be hiring the best logo designer and have them just make logos because that's the thing that they're amazing at. And the moment that you realize you you don't have a you're not surrounding yourself with a team of experts who are better than you at each individual facet of your business, that's when you're a freelancer. And that's when you're going to have a really hard time scaling. And it's completely fine to be a freelancer, but freelancing can't scale because you're always limited by your own time, your own energy, your own skill set, et cetera, et cetera. Much better to be the CEO and then hire experts to deliver on the things that you deliver inside your business. So that's the distinction as I see it. I love that. And the other thing that's really, really important that you mentioned before that I want you to go into now is the distinction between automating a process and hiring someone to run a process, right? Because those are actually really important because some people might be like, oh, here's everything I do in my business. I'm just going to hire people to run every part of it. What you've done is gone to a very sophisticated level of automation so that you can have a substantial portion of your business function without any human beings at all needing to be involved. Can you talk about that and maybe just even give some examples of all the different pieces of your business that you've automated and then talk about how people should think about what can be automated versus what they need human beings to run? Yep. So I'm going to get specific here. There's four aspects of your business that you can systematize and automate. So the first is client onboarding. And that is the entire journey from a client reaching out to you to them actually signing the contract and paying the invoice and becoming your client. Then there's client delivery, which is the entire process of you guys working together, you delivering your service. You can also automate and systematize your marketing, which is your entire process of generating leads. And then lastly, you can also systematize and automate your sales, which is the process of once you you generate those leads, how do you get them on the phone or close the deal? However, you go ahead and do that. So I see these four phases as the areas that you can systematize and automate. And I believe it's best to do them in that order. So for me, the first thing that you want to do is focus on automating your client onboarding process. The reason for that is if you focus on marketing and sales too much, which is what I did in the beginning, right? I was super focused on getting those clients. I got 12 clients in my second month in business. And then I had to deliver on all of that. And I spent so much time in client delivery, it was impossible to create systems because I had to keep these clients happy. Once you have too many clients, you end up in this vicious cycle where you deliver for your clients and you don't do any marketing and you don't do any sales during that time because you're delivering for your clients. You finish working with those clients. Oh, shit. I don't have any more clients because I haven't been marketing. So now I'm going to market and do all this sales and marketing and all this stuff. And now I get all these clients again. Great. Now I have 10 new clients. Fuck, I have to deliver for these clients. And I deliver for these clients and I'm swamped and everything like that. And then I have no more clients. It's this vicious cycle, right? So what I recommend is you automate the client onboarding and delivery process first so that when you get 10 new clients in a day, you can handle that and you can deliver on all of that. And then you move on to automating your sales and marketing. So that's the first step is to automate the client onboarding and delivery. And the way that you do that to get really specific, this is what a client onboarding journey looks like for every entrepreneur, no matter what your industry is. There's a way that potential clients reach out to you. 
So that could be through Instagram DM, could be through a Facebook message, could be through an email referral, could be through a contact form on your website, right? There's all these different ways that a client reaches out to you. So then you want to have a system for every single one of those touch points. And you want to get super granular here, list out every way that a client could reach out to you. What happens when they send you an Instagram DM? And chances are you're going to talk to them a little bit, see who they are, see what their business is. Are they a good fit? Does it make sense to get on the phone? And then you want to create a process for getting on the phone. So just to give you an example, my process, I talk to someone mostly is through Instagram DMs. If I think they might be a good fit, I send them a link to an application. And the reason for the application is my time is very valuable. I'm not getting on the phone with any Yahoo. <laughs> I'm only getting on the phone with people who are pretty much 90% already committed to investing in my services, right? So the application it's not just your name and your email address and whatever. It's your name and your email address and information about your business, your services, your pain point, your current revenue, your ability to invest in my services, which are high ticket, all of these types of things. So you fill out this application and you're redirected to a calendar where you can pick a slot that I have pre-designated is convenient for me. So I only take sales calls on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I hate Mondays. I sleep all day on Mondays, <laughs> right? So they book into my calendar and they're automatically sent a link for the call. So then all I've done is answer a couple Instagram DMs, right? And now they've filled out my application. The application gets sent automatically to my little CRM service that imports their name, their info, everything like that. Then I have the sales call. That's manual. Always, it's going to take you or another human that you outsource to to do the sales call. That's the human aspect. Can't automate that. However, there's three potential outcomes from the sales call. One, they say yes. They want to work with you. Great. That's what we all want. Two, they say no. Okay. I see a no as a not yet. And we'll get into that in a second. Three, they say yes. You send the contract an invoice and they never get back to you. So those are the three outcomes from a sales call. So what I do is I automate an email nurture sequence for each one of those things. The moment they sign up for a sales call, they're actually getting emails from me about my story, client case studies, success that clients have had, these types of things. And you can automate all of this so that by the time they get on the phone with me, they know everything about me and my services and everything that's included. And all I'm doing is talking about money objections, mindset, et cetera, et cetera. That's what you should be talking about on your sales call, not how many revisions are included in your logo package. <laughs> they should already know that information because you've automated your information delivery. So once they are a yes, you trigger an automated workflow that sends them a contract and an invoice. And once they pay those things, they get a welcome packet, which includes your homework that you have for them, a link to schedule the kickoff call, a link to the project schedule, a link to the client portal where they can find all the links and the resources. This is essentially like the syllabus that you would get at university, right? This is all the information that you need for the project because it's really, really important that you give your clients a uh, very clear roadmap for what the project's going to look like. If there are no, you don't want to just ghost and never talk to them again. You want to trigger an automated email sequence with some resources for them. You still want to help this person. I've had clients who were a no, and then a year later, they come back and they work with me because I've been emailing them every week, sending them value. And now they have the money. Now they're ready to invest, right? And then the biggest thing that I see is people leaving money on the table with these, these yeses who ghost people who say yes on the call. And now you send them the contract and invoice. And then a week later, you're like, hey, just bumping this to the top of your, in, your inbox. And then another week, you're like, hey, just making sure you got this email, right? And you never hear from that client again. 
because that's a totally ineffective follow-up strategy. So I have a whole other automated email sequence where if they don't respond to my contract and invoice within three days, I send them an email meant to address common objections that I see, fears. You've talked to your partner. Your partner thinks you're crazy. These All of these types of things. I have a little FAQ email that goes out. It's a little three email nurture sequence, right? So this is all automated inside of my business and it's designed to help encourage my clients to take the step that I know is going to explode their business, which is to work with me. And that all was automated. You don't need a person to do it. It's a lot of work to set up initially. It took me Well, the reality is it took me two years of trial and error to set all this up and get it working. Now I can condense it into about a (laughs) 60-minute speech about what you actually need. But basically, anything that can be automated online, which is every type of communication and workflow and everything like that, you want to go ahead and automate so that you can be providing this high-touch experience to your clients. And then the only thing that can't be automated is the actual work. The service itself So in my case, designing the logos, building the website, that's done by a human being. But your human being that you pay should not be sending out emails that a computer can actually be sending out for you instead. That's really, really important, I think, for people to be able to go through and audit the different pieces of their business and see which of them can be automated and then to build those systems. Let me ask you this, just in terms of your actual deliverables and what you help companies do with their website and their branding, what are the most important pieces to having an impactful online brand presence? What advice can you give to business owners about their website and their online brand presence and what they should be paying most attention to to have that be impactful? Yep. So the first thing is clarity. I can't tell you how many websites I've been to where in the first 30 seconds, I actually don't know what they do. So people's time on the internet is very valuable. Spending 30 seconds on a website is like spending 10 years on something in internet time, (laughs) right? So you need to, within the first 30 seconds, be so clear who you help, what you do, and what results you help them achieve. And there's a big distinction here because... I see people focus on the features rather than the benefits. So in my case, I don't help you create a brand and website. That's boring. Nobody actually wants a brand and website. They want what a brand and website gets them, right? Which is time and money. Those are the two things anyone ever wants. No matter what your service is, you ultimately are helping people get more time and or more money. (laughs) That's it. So you need to figure out a way to communicate right away. I help this type of person do X, Y, Z so that they can do what they actually want. And that needs to be communicated within the first, ideally 10 seconds, but ultimately the first 30 seconds that someone is on your website. And if it's not, that person's gone and they're never coming back because there's so much shit on the internet for us to get distracted by. So that's the number one thing is clarity in your message, who you're speaking to, and how you can help them. And then the second thing is point of view, especially when it comes to branding and web design, because you're right, there's so many out there. And there are so many digital agency websites that are just like, they have no perspective, they have no point of view. They say like, they say, here's who I am and who I help. But then like, they say nothing else to actually connect the viewer with them. 
So in my case, I start right away talking about women and our specific struggle. I start right away swearing on my website. And I've gotten Facebook messages from people being like, I'm never going to work with you because you swear and that's so unprofessional. And I'm like, great. We're, we're, don't, we're not meant to work together. Like, no, go away because I want the people who love my swearing. Right. So you want to take a perspective and a point of view right away on your website, whether that's a political perspective, whether that's a group of people that you identify with, whatever that is, that is your differentiator. So number one, clarity. Number two, differentiator. And no matter what your design is like or any technical crap, like those are the two things you need to achieve on your website in order to actually magnetize clients, which is what we're all trying to do with our brands and our websites. I love that. That's such important advice. Let me ask you about managing a distributed team and creating company culture in a virtual location-independent enterprise. How Mm -hmm. do you approach those two things and what tips Mm. do you have? Yep. So... When it comes to internal company culture, as well as external marketing, my philosophy is you set the tone. People are only going to be as obsessed with your business and your service as you are. And that is the case, whether it's internal employees or your clients, right? And so especially, you know, for me, my whole business is based on my personal brand. Essentially, I have an Instagram account and that's where I get most of my clients. Not everyone's business is this way. This is what works for me. So when you run a business based on a personal brand, you set the tone. When it comes to internal corporate culture, this has been quite a journey for me that I did not do very well at in the beginning. And a lot of this was imposter syndrome, you know, feeling like who wants to work for me? I'm a burden. I'm asking too much of this person. You know, they want to be out living their lives. They don't want to do another revision on the logo because it's not quite exactly what it needs to be, right? And I really struggled with this because I wanted to foster people's creativity and also satisfy my clients. And how do you combine those things? How do you hold people to the highest standard while also making them feel supported and loved. And that was really important to me because I didn't feel that in entertainment culture. And I wanted the people on my team to know, like, you're a person and I see that. And, you know, you're going through a breakup or you're this or you're that and you're a human being. So it's been quite a journey. And essentially, this has come down to automation as well. So what I do now when I hire someone is I pay them for two weeks to train and not do any work. They don't do any work for me for two weeks. They just consume my company culture. And essentially what I have done is created a suite of videos, some of which are company culture videos. Here's our beliefs. Here's what we care about. Here are our standards. A lot of which are more just process. This is the process of building a website. These are the deliverables. These are the points you need to hit. When you send a logo for review, here is the process for that. It's basically a bunch of screen share videos that walk you through that. And I pay my team for two entire weeks to consume all of that content and internalize it and ask me questions and everything like that. The other thing I do that I think is very unique is, so I have a personal brand. I have a following on social media and I leverage that to promote my team because most of my team has their own stuff that they're doing, their own travel blog, their own business, their own this, their own that. And I use my own social media to promote these people and to 
you know, really talk them up and, and say, hey, go follow this person. She built this website. She did this amazing job. And also she lives in Thailand and she's doing this thing, everything like that. And so my team really knows, like, I care about you and I see you as more than just like my employee. I see you as a human being with multifaceted, multi-passionate. And I care about that. And I want to help you succeed in your endeavors. And since I started doing that, it has gone very well for me. That's so awesome. I want to ask you also as a business owner about how you structure your time and your days. Do you have morning routines? Do you have evening routines? Do you have a particular day structure? How are you as productive as you are? So (laughs) I'm going to be really honest with you and let you know that I figured everything out and I had the perfect structure, and then I fell in love, and everything went to shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, so when I had all my time to myself, right, it was very easy, you have 24 hours in a day. So I did, I I had a great structure, I'd wake up, I would have breakfast, I would go for a run, I would really like fill up my cup when it came to the day. And then sit down and I would always do my most creative work first. So whether that was client deliverable stuff I need to work on or business CEO task requiring vision, do that stuff first and then do the more granular kind of boring stuff. Maybe I need to meet with my tax accountant or whatever else. End of the day, right? That was my basic structure. And because I had so much time, it was very easy. And I had this is when I was living in Lisbon. I had kind of figured everything out. It was kind of the renaissance period for my business because I had all of my time to myself. I had a team, I had these systems in place, and I just sat around drinking espresso, eating pastries, and it was very easy, right? So then I met my partner and I fell head over heels in love with him. And I wanted to spend all of my time with this person. And suddenly I realized, you know, how I had taken for granted, you know, the spaciousness that I had inside of my business. And suddenly I had to figure out how to be very efficient with my time. You know, I I need to get this done in three hours because this guy is coming over and I want to spend the rest of the evening with him. And I never had that urgency before. I had complete autonomy over my own time. And so I could dick around and do whatever I wanted and always prioritize my business. My priorities changed and became this person in this relationship. And now my business is my second priority, but also my livelihood. (laughs) And things became very complicated after that. And it's something that I'm honestly still figuring out the work-life balance when you bring in another massive commitment into your life. I think that's a really important caveat, right? Um, in terms of as you have new priorities that come into your life, how do you adjust and how do you balance and all that kind of stuff? And obviously, it's a good thing that you were able to build a lot of this automated systems first. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? Because if this happened on day one of Bali, it would have been a different scenario, right? Yeah. In fact, it's so interesting because one of the reasons I moved to Bali, you know, I had a really hard time dating in Los Angeles. Everyone works in entertainment. They're a certain type of person. And I started to feel like I'm not going to meet my person here. The type of people that are in L.A. are not my people. And I thought, I'm going to move to Bali and I'm going to meet my tribe, not just romantically, but friends, everything. I thought it's going to be a bunch of people, digital nomads. They travel. They have businesses. And you know, to be fair, it's not like I met every single person in Bali. Of course, I can't speak for everyone. But the people I did meet 
with the exception of a couple good friends, I by and large felt very sort of disappointed and disconnected with that community. I felt like many people there were just trying to make enough money to like survive in Bali or Thailand or whatever. And they wanted to make money to support their lifestyle. And I think that's great. I completely support that. And also it's not me. I'm incredibly ambitious. I wanna have a huge impact on the world. I wanna make a lot of money. I'm always looking for the next thing. And I need my partner to be there with me. And I didn't find anyone like that in Bali. And I was so disappointed. And also that gave me the, the time and the spaciousness to, to focus solely on my business. My business was basically my relationship at that point. And that's when I hired my team and built in these systems and built in these automations. So that when I was living in Lisbon and I met, you know, my current partner, I was working like two hours a day. I had everything figured out. I was like so calm and I was just in a space where I was available, you know, mentally and emotionally to actually meet someone and dedicate some time and energy to them because I had implemented these systems inside of my business and outsourced these things inside of my business. What tips or thoughts or reflections can you share with folks about the concept of dating and relationship building as a nomad? I feel like it's one of the most common questions that I get. How does dating work as a nomad? And then if you meet someone, how does a relationship work? How does, how does that happen? How does that work? Um, I would love at this point, I know you've been full-time nomading for two years now. And yeah, any reflections that you have on, on dating and relationship building in the nomadic lifestyle? Yes, man, I am still learning, right? It's, it's a constant journey. And what's so interesting is, yeah, I had in my head this idea that I would go to Bali and I would like meet my soulmate and all this stuff. And that didn't happen. And I was like a little bit disappointed about that. And then I moved to Singapore and I lived with a woman who was like obsessed with with dating and finding someone. And I kind of adopted that mentality and started dating a lot and was really not impressed with what I felt was available to me. And then I actually <laughs> I made a spreadsheet where I started tracking the time I was spending on these dating apps and going on dates and everything like that. And it was like 20 hours a week, some huge amount of time that was, in my opinion, a complete waste because not only was I not finding a partner, but also I wasn't even like having fun or enjoying myself. It was like this, this task I had to do. And so I completely stopped doing it. I was like, okay, dating is not working. It's so much time and energy. I have so many other things I want to be doing. I'm traveling the world. I want to learn new skills. I want to learn language. I want to do all this stuff. I'd way rather allocate my time to that. So I moved to Lisbon. I completely gave up on dating and not in a negative way. It's not like I was like, oh, never find anyone. It was more just like I reprioritized my time for stuff that I felt was going to be more fulfilling for me in Lisbon. So I'm learning Portuguese. I was taking cooking classes. I was doing all of these things. And I did have a friend who also was very focused on finding a partner. And so one day together, we did an exercise where we were like, okay, let's write down everything that we would want in a partner for them to be like worth our time. She was in a similar position as I was, very successful, had independent life, had all of these things. And when you get to that point, it becomes harder and harder to find a partner because they have to make your already amazing life better. When your life's fucking awesome, 
you're not just gonna accept any schmo into it. Like they have to really elevate the game for you. And so we were like, what would actually elevate things for us? Cause we're already like so fulfilled and so happy. And I wrote a four page list of all this shit. Some really broad, some really specific. And like, and it was great because there were no rules. I was just like, I'm just gonna write down everything that comes to my mind, no matter how ridiculous, I'm not gonna judge myself. Like, this is what I want. And I wrote it all down. All the way down to like penis size, like everything. I wrote it all down. <laughs> right. So I write it down. I read this list and I'm like, this person doesn't exist. This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> but that's okay. Like I accepted like, this is what you want. This person doesn't exist. Good thing you have an amazing life and you don't need this person to exist. And I'm just going to keep living my amazing life. So I fold the list and I put it away in the corner and I just kept living my life. Two weeks later, I met this person. And what's so interesting is this is a person who is lovely and also I potentially wouldn't have picked up on how specifically lovely he is if not for that list. That list of what I wanted gave me so much clarity. So when I met this person, it was so clear to me, oh, you, you're all of the things. And I'm not really one of those hippie woo-woo, like the universe manifested this thing. Like, I don't believe in that. Like, I'm a spreadsheet girl. But I wrote everything down that I wanted. And then this person appeared in front of me that was all of these things down to the nitty gritty details. And to this day, I haven't shown him that list because it's like creepy. Like, I think I might be a witch. <laughs> I'm like, did you exist before I wrote this? Or did you just like become like a person in existence because I made this list? And it only happened for me when I completely detached from it. I wrote down what I wanted and was so clear and then was so happy with never getting that because I was so happy with my own life and existence. And I and I prioritized my time with what I wanted to do rather than dating apps and meeting people and blah, blah, blah. And then I was doing one of those things. I was out for Halloween with my friend who I'd made this list with. We decided to make super elaborate Halloween costumes, which we had both never done before. And we were like, we want to do the skeleton face makeup. We've never done this. We're going to spend hours doing it. And we're going to go out and we're going to party because that's what we want to do. And the last thing on my mind was meeting a partner. And then he appeared. Wow. And then once you meet this person and you're both location independent nomads, how then does the relationship move forward from there? Because it strikes me <laughs> that to start dating as a nomad, if you're you're in the same city, you meet each other in the same city, but you're itinerant nomads, you're not based in that city. So then it's like, well, we need to start traveling together, which is basically moving in with each other, <laughs> <laughs> like right away, which seems to just completely accelerate the entire sort of quote unquote normal dating process. In And I would love to hear just kind of like how you dealt with the reality and made your relationship work? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because as digital nomads, we've already rejected what society tells us to do, which is go to college, get a job, 
be miserable in that job, get a retirement plan, get married, the whole shebang. We've all rejected that and said, no, there is another way. There's a better way. And we've all had to face our families and try to explain that to them. We've all had to face our own bank accounts, try to explain it to that. All of these things. I still don't have health insurance. and I don't really understand how to get it. Like... <laughs> All of these things that we've had to do. Yeah, here I am, all this money, no health insurance, because it's confusing. <laughs> so we've done this. We've already stepped off the beaten path. And then you're right. Then there's relationships. And how does that look? And the answer is different for everyone. For me, I met this person, and you're exactly right. He was also a nomad, and that was an important thing on my list, location independent. So we met in Lisbon, and he had plans to be in Lisbon for two more weeks, and then he was going on the Nomad Cruise, which is where we are now, but he was going on last year's Nomad Cruise. And of course, we meet, and I was very resistant to this idea that this person was going to affect my life in any way, because my life was great. Why? Like, I'm going to have great sex with you, you're very attractive, and then I'm going to keep living my life, and that's what I wanted. And I couldn't ignore fact that I started getting these pesky little feelings <laughs> happening. And so for us, we met for two weeks, had this whirlwind romance that we both sort of tried to deny because it doesn't fit in to our worldview as a nomad. As a nomad, you meet people, you have amazing sex for the amount of time you're in the same city, and then you move on. And it's great. There's no hard feelings with that, like, because you both know the lifestyle and it's like this mutual agreement. And in a lot of ways, that makes it easier than when you live in the same city and you might like run into them at a bar and this and that. It's like, oh, we're going to different continents. This is fine. <laughs> but and I'd had that a bunch of times and it had gone, you know, very well, exactly as expected. But then this time he I remember he left. We hugged goodbye and he left Lisbon. And I cried for two hours. And I did not expect that. I was shocked. And then I had to process that. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that was my first thought was, oh, no. And then what happened for three months, we didn't see each other. And I still was in denial. You know, we were messaging on Facebook. And I was like, okay, I'm going to message this guy on Facebook. But, like, it's going to fizzle out because that's super annoying. Like, how much of a relationship can you really keep up? Like, he's in South America. I'm in Europe. So we messaged every day on Facebook for three months. And that's very out of character, you know, for both of us. I woke up every day and was excited to talk to him. And I thought that was so weird. Like, I had all this great stuff going on in my life but I wanted to like message this guy on Facebook I even turned on my Facebook notifications which is a total shit show because I get like a hundred messages a day but I'm like dealing with that on my phone just so I can hear from this guy <laughs> so we agreed to meet up three months later in Panama and just kind of like see and even at that time I was in denial that it would be anything more than like just sex but we met up and you know we had that spark and the thing that makes it work is honesty and openness and communication that I think, honestly, digital nomads tend to be better at because we all have done the same thing, which is we've all rejected the life that we were prescribed, do something different. And for all of us, whether we left corporate jobs, whether we have money, whether we don't have money, wherever we come from, for all of us, there was this moment of like, I'm going to take this leap of faith and do something different that's 
that my parents don't support, that someone in my life doesn't support. And I'm doing it anyway because I can't live my life any other way. (laughs) And so because we've all already done this one thing, we can do the second thing, which is creating a relationship that works for us. Because I also believe like just as much as the corporate slog is killing our souls, like relationships and limitations and monogamy is killing our souls. Because every time we get into a traditional relationship, we're limiting ourselves. We're saying you can't do this, these set of things because it means you don't love me. So for us, and this is different for everyone, for us, we have always said like we love each other and that love means we want each other to do everything that we want no limitations and doing everything that you want doesn't mean you don't also love that person so for us it's been a year of exploring like how do you pursue love where you give someone the complete freedom and the best part of that is that they choose you every single day and we're still figuring out what that looks like (laughs) you know it's not perfect and it's confusing and it requires a lot of self-growth And I love that. I have a pattern of jumping into the unknown in my life. And this is just the latest instance of that. Let me ask you as well about travel. You've now been a full-time digital nomad for two years. What does travel mean to you? Why do you travel? What do you get out of it? What does travel mean to you? So the first time I really traveled, I was 16 years old, and I was lucky enough to go on a class trip to China. Yeah. So starting at age 12, I took Chinese language in school. We went on this class trip just for one week to China. Um, And I was sick the whole time. I was so sick, I had to go to the hospital and get an x-ray because I had a respiratory infection. Yet, when I got back from China, it was all I could think about. My world had expanded infinitely. I went from being from a town with 20,000 people to being in China where everything is different than everything I've ever known. And all I wanted from that moment was to go back there. And the reason I wanted to go back there was because something as simple as trying to, to buy medicine was so weird, different. It meant that every moment was exciting. And actually what I did was I graduated from high school six months early I went back to China for six months before starting college because I was addicted to this feeling of like anything can happen. My life was so predictable and so boring. I knew everything that was going to happen. And I just loved this idea like food is new. Relationships are new. The way you interact is new. Manners are new. Everything is new. And I just was addicted to that feeling. And um, that was my first experience with travel. And when I thought when I was about to be 30 and I thought about when, when was I the most happy? It was when I was traveling through China. It was because I was free and I was experiencing, you know, the, the world in its realest, most raw way. Like my worldview is one way. And I think that to me, travel is this idea of taking in information about different ways of being and letting that expand your your overall worldview and it's problem solving and it's exciting and it makes the mundane everyday tasks of living of buying a toothbrush of finding a place to sleep figuring out the currency exchange rate it makes those things exciting and so 
every single day is an adventure where your brain is engaged. And that, to me, is why I'm so drawn to travel. And I love as well what you shared about how Bali did not meet your expectations. Like, I actually think that's a really, really important part of this because I've interviewed plenty of people that love Bali and they decided to live in Bali and all this kind of stuff in the same way, you know, but I feel like one of the things about travel is that you will get your expectations Mm. disrupted and you need to be prepared to adapt to that, right? And what I love about your story, though, is that you went to Bali, you had all these expectations, you had put Bali on this... (laughs) enormous pedestal, right? It had been a big inspiration for you. This was your aspiration for where you wanted to go and was the ultimate kind of, you know, nomad haven. And then when you got there, your personal experience, just one thing after another, after another, (laughs) after another, and it was just not what you envisioned. So how did you, after that, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a, a letdown or a disruption in terms of your vision, how then was you know, did you bounce back from that? And how has the rest of your travel journey been? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question that I think about a lot because when I first started traveling, you know, it was 2004. So no Instagram. And the thing that I think has made the biggest impact on our travel expectations, including mine, is Instagram. And this is so interesting because my entire personal brand is built there. I make all of my money from my brand on Instagram. And also Instagram sort of poisons and pollutes the way we all think about the world. You know, I recently just visited Petra in Jordan as a stop on this cruise. And my whole goal there was to get the perfect photo for Instagram. And I'm okay with that. You know, I've accepted that as a reality of my personal brand and something that I'm interested in. But I also recognize that me taking the perfect photo in Petra and then posting it on Instagram impacts the way everyone else experiences that amazing wonder of the world. And that for me was Bali. So Bali is everywhere on Instagram, everywhere on Facebook. You see these amazing photos, people with coconuts, they're in the rice fields, beautiful sunsets, all of this stuff. And it really shows the highlight reel. No one's showing the time they crashed their scooters and got stitches, even though it's happened to almost every person in Bali, right? No one's showing the time they got food poisoning, also known as Bali Belly, and they were bedridden for seven days. Also happens to every single person. We're only showing these beautiful moments. So I guess for me, being totally disillusioned by the experience of Bali made me realize, like, one, I have to take everything with a grain of salt. And, you know, that's, I think, a very obvious takeaway from that. But then the second thing is, like, okay— what is off the beaten path? What are, you know, I started in like the digital nomad haven. And I think that was a great landing pad for me, for anyone. I still recommend Bali for sure, because it's set up for digital nomads. But then I was, you know, I was like, what's next? Like, where can I go that's different? It's interesting. And, you know, that's that's how I ended up in Taiwan, for example. Taiwan is not known as a digital nomad haven, mainly because of the language barrier. But for me... I started in the most obvious, easy places for nomads. And once I moved beyond that, it kind of opened up my ability to say, there are so many more places to be discovered that aren't on Instagram. And then I have this constant internal struggle of like, should I put this on Instagram? Because I don't want to ruin it. (laughs) I love that. How do you select 
the places that you're going to travel, how do you design your lifestyle mm. and structure your travel itineraries and nomad? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it's much different now with a partner, right? Because before, basically, I created my first digital nomad plan as I'm going to go to Bali for six months and I'm going to go to Lisbon, Portugal for six months because those are two of the biggest digital nomad hubs. And to me, that felt like the easiest thing to do. And I had that plan way in advance, and I basically stuck to that plan. You know, I had a couple stopover trips. I went back to the U.S. to visit my family in the summer, blah, blah, blah. But overall, I spent six months in Bali, six months in Lisbon. That was very easy. But when that time ended, I kind of had a freakout moment. So I was like, okay, my plan was six months in Bali and six months in Lisbon. I did that. Now what? Like, I can do anything. Like, what do I do? And for me, you know, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't met this person. I'm not sure, like, where I would have gone. What I did, I knew this person was in Brazil. And I wanted to create a situation where we could easily see each other again. So I decided to go to Peru. Because I wanted to go to Peru. It was a bucket list item for me, going traveling to Machu Picchu, this and that. But I also, I could have selected anywhere. I have tons of bucket list locations. But I chose Peru knowing if I'm in Peru and he's in Brazil, if we want to see each other again, like we're both in South America, it's totally doable. And that really colored my trip because from then on, he was like, oh, you're in South America. Well, I have to be in Panama for the next three to six months. Like, do you want to hang out there? So Panama, a place that I never would have thought of going not been on my radar at all and then when I researched it there's like all this scary shit about how dangerous it is and I was like oh my god am I gonna go to Panama for this guy like what is what am I doing of course I go to Panama and it's fine I had an amazing time in Panama it's beautiful I recommend it to everyone but at the time I only went there you know because of this person and then over the last year, it's been a very interesting combination of like places I want to go, places he wants to go, and then also places where my friends are. So for example, my my best friend from childhood, we've known each other 25 years, her husband is from South Africa. And so because she knows I'm location independent, she said, hey, we're going to South Africa in May. Do you want to come with us? And I did. I can. Right. Like who has the opportunity to get shown around South Africa, you know, by a local who grew up there. But at the time I was living in Panama. So I structured my whole life to be able to travel from Panama to South Africa for the two weeks that they were there and then back, which is like never something I would have done otherwise. But because this opportunity came up, I was able to take it. So for me, the way I designed my travel life is a combination of Bucket list items that I want, which I keep a Pinterest board of bucket list items for me. So this year, I've gone to Machu Picchu. I've seen the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro. And I've been to Chichen Itza in Mexico. And those were three things that were on my bucket list that I was like, I want to do these things. (laughs) Right. And then also Petra. Petra was another thing that I really wanted to do. And I just saw last week. And then inside of all of that, I've also gone along with, you know, what my partner wants to do. And he's wanted to do things that I would never think of that, you know, have been amazing. And then also inside of that, I've had multiple trips with friends and family that I also would never plan on. But because I can, I do. So I went to South Africa and I took my mom to Italy for two weeks. And so it creates a situation where I have taken about seven 16-hour flights 
this year across the world. <laughs> which maybe next year I want to take it a little easier. But that's kind of how I design my life is prioritizing, you know, family and friends and being able to meet them wherever they are because the reality is anywhere I go in the world, I'm going to have an amazing experience. That is amazing. And Mel, on that note, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? I'm ready. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you would recommend people check out? Right. So this is a book called Make Good Art by Neil Gaiman. And it's actually a speech that he gave at a college graduation ceremony that has been turned into a book. And so it's mostly text art and you can actually read it in about 20 minutes. And it has had a profound impact on the way that I look at creativity as it relates to imposter syndrome and fraud police. And I recommend it to everyone. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd most recommend to people? Yep. So this is a non-traditional approach. I recommend the Headspace app. This is a meditation app. So it's not exactly productivity or anything like that. Um, It's a free app and it helps you meditate, whether that's for three minutes or an hour, regardless of where you are inside of your meditation practice. But I use this not consistently. I'm not some kind of guru that meditates every day or anything like that. But it is a tool in my arsenal of tools that I have available to me. So if I need to do a podcast interview, for example, I need to do anything where I have to ground and connect I use this app and I just load up a five minute meditation to just like sit and have some time to really come back into congruence with myself. I find this to actually be a productivity app because without this app, maybe I would need to record a video 10 times, but now I can record it in one take because I've cleared my head through this app. Awesome. What is one podcast you listen to or blog you read or YouTube channel you watch, one content medium that you'd recommend people check out? Mm -hmm. So I can recommend my former business coach who I credit to helping me create the entire life that we've been talking about. Her name is Libby Crow, and she has a podcast called Beyond the Dream, where she interviews entrepreneurs, digital nomads, everything like that. Hugely impactful people with incredible stories that she talks about their story and then also, you know, their tactical business ideas. And I think similar to your podcast, that it's an incredible combination of triumph as well as business. Awesome. I'm going to go check that out immediately (laughs) because I haven't listened to it yet. So, um, and by the way, folks, we're going to link all of this up in the show notes. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and just go to the show notes for this episode and every single thing that we've mentioned in this episode, we're going to have links, direct links right there. All right, Mel, if you could have dinner with one person that's currently alive today who you've never met, could be author, celebrity, public figure, movie star, professional athlete, anybody in the world currently living today, who would you choose and why? Michelle Obama. This is just hands down so easy for me. My favorite anecdotal story about Michelle Obama is that her and Barack were having dinner at a restaurant in Chicago And her childhood crush came up to her at this restaurant and said, hey, 
I just want to let you know that I had a crush on you all your childhood and I'm so excited to see everything that you've accomplished, blah, blah, blah. So Michelle comes back to dinner with Barack and talks about this story. And, you know, he's like, ha, 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 like, oh, if you had ended up with him, you could be married to this successful restaurant owner. And she says, no, he'd be president of the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, I think she is an incredible example of kind of being being given a position you know she didn't ask for to be the first lady she was kind of put into this position and she's famously known for having resistance around living a public life and she very quickly realized that the opportunity that she had to impact so many lives and to be an idol and to be a leader and to me she just embodies everything that I'm trying to do and I look up to her so much for her grace and her class and her ability to embrace a role that she didn't ask for and continues to just push the envelope when it comes to what you can achieve in that way. And, you know, I think she's incredible and I would love to have dinner with her. Amazing. If you could go back in time now, knowing everything that you know up to this point in your life, and you could give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Mel? I really wish I could go back and tell this to myself because what I would say is people are going to judge you anyway. So do whatever the fuck you want. Like there's no world in which you are perfect and people don't judge you. So with that knowledge, you are totally free to do anything regardless of what your parents want or your boyfriend wants or any of this nonsense. Man, if I had known that when I was 18, who knows where I'd be now? That's awesome. Our last two questions are travel related. Mm-hmm. First one is, what are the top three travel destinations, your favorite three travel destinations you've ever been to that you'd most recommend people check out? Mm-hmm. So the first one is Rio de Janeiro, 100%. I was very scared to go there because of all the news we hear about how dangerous it is. Of course, it's dangerous, everything like that. And also, I had an incredible experience there. Everyone was so friendly. It's shockingly beautiful. And I have seen some incredible things in my life. But Rio just has this energy that if you can go there, it's amazing. It's so wonderful. So Rio is probably top of the list. You know, the next one is China. You know, that's a country and not a city. And if you're if you don't speak Chinese, of course, you kind of have to go to like Beijing, Xi'an or Shanghai, like those types of places. But China, I feel gets a bad rap because of its government. Totally understandable. But the, the reality is, you know, just like the U.S., like we are not a product of our government. Same in China, like the people are so friendly and so kind and they will take care of you like you're their family. And the country is just strikingly beautiful and if you can spend any time there and it'll be weird and you'll have to poop in a squat toilet and you'll probably get food poisoning and all these things but it'll also probably be the most beautiful thing you experience in your life so china is really number two there and then honestly coming back to lisbon you know lisbon is probably an expected answer but to me my time in lisbon was so magical because of its 
its physical beauty. The houses are painted in these incredible pastel colors, and the sunset creates this light like nothing I've ever seen before. And it really feels like you're in a fairy tale, and like for a moment around 5 p.m., like you can forget everything. And you just feel like you're in like a little snow globe of perfection. And I think everyone should experience that. So amazing. This is such a good fix. I've lived in Lisbon for at least three months. I've been there multiple times and it is spectacular. Rio, I could not agree with you more. I think it is the single, my number one, I tell people the number one most beautiful, naturally beautiful city in the world. I think Cape Town's probably number two, but Rio is just mind-blowingly amazing. I lived there for about two months, including over Carnival, so I got to experience Carnival in Rio. But then I also wanted to experience not Carnival in Rio, and like regular Rio, so that's why I stayed for 60 days in a row. And it, it, it was just an amazingly impactful experience on me as well. I was completely blown away, and I've been back to Brazil now multiple times to experience other parts of Brazil, which were also freaking amazing, but those are awesome picks. And then mainland China is a place I've actually not been. I've been to Hong Kong and Macau and mainland China is really, really high on my list. I feel like it deserves like a year of my time. It's just so huge and there's just so much there. I feel like it just, I just need to go for a year, but it's so high on my list. So let's now move into the final question, which is your bucket list. And I would love to know what are the top three places in the world that you've never been that you would most love to go right now? Yep. So one of the things that's big on my list right now is seeing the Northern Lights. I've never seen them. And especially um, on my Pinterest board where I keep all my bucket list items is staying in one of those glass igloos in Norway so that you can lay in bed and just stare up at the northern lights. That sounds, that's just like next level amazing. I really, really want to do that. So the next thing, this isn't really a destination. I'm going to cheat a little bit, and it's more of an adventure, which is something you've probably heard of. It's called the Mongol Rally. Yeah. So this is something I've wanted to do since I first heard about it when I was 18 years old. And what this is, is it's a car or motorcycle race from usually London to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. Basically, it's like a three-month or so adventure where you get a tiny, comically, hilariously tiny car and you drive from London all the way to Mongolia, you know, driving all the way through either the southern route, like the Middle East, or through like Russia and Kazakhstan and all these things. And you're totally on your own and it's for charity and it's ridiculous. I've been waiting to build the perfect team to do this adventure. I'm pretty close to it. And I am, like, desperate to do this thing, which is so funny because it does not align in any way to my usual bougie sensibilities. <laughs> but I am, like, absolutely desperate to do the Mongo Rally. I just think, you know, it's it's one of the, the world experiences to do. One of the best things about traveling is realizing that even in the most dangerous place, 99% of the people there, like, want to help you. A hundred percent agreed. Yep. And with that mentality, you know, the Mongo rally, the idea of the, my car breaking down in the middle of Kazakhstan and I have to get some mechanic in the middle of nowhere to help me out. Like, I love that. And I also know that the world will help me. So that is number two <laughs> for sure. Amazing. Yep. And then you said three places, right? Okay. So my number three place is Antarctica. Because it's a place where no one goes. I mean, people are there, but very few people go. And it just feels like it's a part of the world that is undiscovered 
and is beautiful and potentially not going to be there for very long. And I also think it's very important, you know, when it comes to global warming and when it comes to climate change, I have a platform and a responsibility to communicate about those types of things. And so I want to go to places where I can share about what's really happening. And that's one of the places where I feel like I can do that. Amazing. Mel, you are amazing. I appreciate you so much coming onto the show. I want you to let people know how they can find out about, first of all, your branding and web design services, if they're interested in that. Second of all, about your business mentorship opportunities, if they're interested in that. And third of all, how people can just follow you on social media and connect with you in general. Yep, absolutely. So, if you want to learn more about branding web design services or brand or um, business mentorship, you can go to meljudson.com. There's information there about both of those services. Most easily is just the contact form. You can send an email there and my automated system will filter you into the right place and we will get in touch. And then also, if you just want to follow me on Instagram and kind of connect in that sort of informal way, it's uh, Mel underscore Judson, which is the worst. I know I picked that handle before I was a brand expert, but that is where you can find me online. Amazing. We are going to link all of this up at one place in the show notes, folks. So just go to themaverickshow.com and just click on the show notes for this episode. And everything that we talked about, all of the recommendations that Mel made, all of her contact information, everything that we have talked about in the show is all going to be linked up there in one place. So just go to the show notes at themaverickshow.com and you can click on it directly from there. Mel, this was an absolute blast. We are now completely done with our bottle of wine. And that means the podcast has come to an end. But thank you so much for being here. This is amazing. Thank you so much. I really had a wonderful time and you have excellent taste in wine. This is delightful. (laughs) I appreciate that. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.